listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Well, I hope that the cat is out of the bag when it comes to how we preach and teach God's word here. I really hope that the cat is out of the bag and it's not a secret. When I preach and teach, what I'm trying to do is to give you the equivalent of a Bible college or seminary level education. That's what I am unapologetically trying to do. But I do that with a twist. I'm trying to also make it so practical that the education that you have leads to application. That you don't just cram a bunch of stuff into your head, but it also makes its way into your heart and then into your lifestyle. The whole purpose of education is to get to the point of application when it comes to the Bible. Otherwise, you'll end up, I'll end up, we will end up like a group of Pharisees who knew the word of God and that's all they knew. It's very, very important. It's imperative to know the word of God to such a degree that the word of God begins to come out of your lifestyle. It affects your heart, it affects your mind, it affects how you live. We've been looking at the book of Acts. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 36. Acts chapter two, verse 36, and as you're turning there, I want us to understand the importance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Jewish festival of Pentecost is the day, the time, the right time, in the right way, the golden opportunity for God the Father to make a statement about the Son and the statement that is made on the day of Pentecost with this unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was never before in the history of civilization civilization, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, such as we see as we look back and read Acts chapter 2, such as the apostles and the believers saw on the day of Pentecost, there was never before an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like that. And it's significant that it happened on that day as a first fruits when the church was born, and it is a statement by God the Father. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost proves that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. The anointed and the appointed one spoken of throughout all of the Old Testament. The whole reason why the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers on the day of Pentecost in that unprecedented way is because God himself, the Father, was making a statement about God the Son, that he was and he is. He always will be the anointed and the appointed, the one of a kind, uniquely brought forth, never will be another like Jesus, Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins, my sins, anybody and everyone's sins. And it's another example of how God was going out of his way again and again and again throughout the scriptures to make that same statement, that very same statement. If you look at the scriptures, you see that Jesus is a descendant from the line of David, prophesied about, spoken of, foretold about in the Old Testament. 
Why? Because God wanted his people. He wants us as his people. If you're somebody who's not yet one of God's people, he wants you to understand with absolute clarity that Jesus is the one of a kind, uniquely brought forth, Messiah of Messiahs, Savior of Saviors, the anointed and the appointed one of God. So Jesus, very clearly portrayed as coming from the line of David, as told in the Old Testament. Jesus came into the world through a virgin birth. That's the second thing. Jesus came into the world through a virgin, the virgin birth, told very clearly in Isaiah, because God wanted to make sure that you and I, that we did not mistake the Messiah when he arrived on the scene. On top of that, we have the testimony of John the Baptist, the Elijah who was to come, the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament written by the only Italian prophet, Malachi, right? <laughs> Joking when I say that, Malachi, the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament says that God himself would send his servant Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus gave testimony about John the Baptist saying that he was the Elijah to come. So we have Jesus coming from the line of David. We have Jesus being born of a virgin. We have the testimony of John the Baptist making straight the way of the Lord. Then we have the miraculous signs and wonders of Jesus of Nazareth. To help us understand he wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. He was the anointed and the appointed, the chosen one from Almighty God, doing miraculous signs and wonders because the hand of God was upon him. So that again, God the Father's statement, his seal of approval. What are these signs? signs and wonders mean that Jesus is able to do these unprecedented things, things that have not been replicated since, at will, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. Well, the point is that he is the one that's promised. He's the one that was pointed to and that still is pointed to in the Old Testament as God's anointed and appointed. On top of that, the teaching of Jesus, he was one who taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one who taught with authority. When Jesus talked, people listened. They hung on his every word. Wouldn't you love to go back in time and to hear in real time the words of your Savior that we read about today? Jesus taught as one who taught with authority in keeping with Deuteronomy chapter 18, which said that God would send a prophet like Moses to lead and instruct and to teach the people. Jesus is that one. And then on top of that, we have the rejection of Jesus prophesied about in the Old Testament, the crucifixion of Jesus prophesied about in the Old Testament. Read Psalm 22 when you get a chance, which describes a crucified individual, the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the whole idea of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man would come back to life after three days. All that stuff in the Old Testament and then we have the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus coming back to life, and then the ascension. All of those things are God the Father saying again and again and again and again through different angles communicating the very same conclusion, the, the very same thing that you should conclude that God the Father always knew and that he wants you to know that Jesus really is the anointed and the appointed, the one of a kind, uniquely brought forth Messiah, Savior who gave his life for the forgiveness of your sins, my sins, the sins of anybody who will simply accept him personally as their Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. So all of those things align. 
Jesus being a descendant from the line of David, Jesus being born of a virgin, the testimony of John the Baptist, the miraculous signs and wonders of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus with authority, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and then on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, again, proving that Jesus is the anointed and the appointed, the one of a kind, never will be another one like Jesus. He is God's chosen anointed Messiah. That's what was the significance of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out unlike any other time in all of history. God the Father making a statement. Isn't this enough right now? Maybe we could end in prayer right now. You already have enough information to go to your family members who don't know Christ this week, to go to the workplace this week, to go into your neighborhood this week, and to be able to sit down with somebody and say, hey, let me help you understand. Let me help you connect the dots to understand that Jesus is the anointed and the appointed one sent from God the Father, the only one through whom you can have forgiveness of your sins. And you could share with them just what you just heard right now. That is enough. You are being trained and discipled and mentored in the word of God so that you're equipped, so you have stuff in your back pocket so that you are always ready to give the word, to give a word, to share the hope, the reason that you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. You already have enough. You could sit down with somebody this week and share what you just heard. Do you want me to close in prayer right now and we can finish it? Of course you don't. Because you want to also understand the significance of why God chose Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's significant that God chose Jerusalem as the particular location where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we've been hearing about and reading about and learning about, why did God choose Jerusalem as that particular location? Now, if you've been with us or you've been listening by podcast or on radio, you understand, you understand that 3,000 people came to know Jesus as their Savior and their Messiah on that particular day. And when Peter said, repent and be baptized, there's not record of one person saying, what in the world are you talking about? Bap what? What is baptism? Nobody asked that question because the Jews understood that baptism was something that was common to their practice, as we're going to see about in just a moment. Baptism was something that Jews participated in. It's we in the church, after Judaism, we participate in it, and it has a special tie-in with the identity and identifying in Jesus. Well, it's significant that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit apparently happens in proximity to enough mikvah bathing pools, Jewish bathing pools, baptismal pools, so that when Peter casts that net and pulls it up, the people are within a close enough distance to actually be close enough to water to fulfill what he says they must do. Because they say to him, what must we do in light of the blunder that we crucified God's anointed and appointed? In light of the fact that we did what we should not have done, humanly speaking, even though the sovereignty of God was at work, and Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice, he was not murdered, 
Peter is able to say, repent and be baptized. They don't ask what baptism is, and apparently they're close enough to enough water that 3,000 people could be baptized that day. Now, you know that we've done baptisms here. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I want you to try and imagine 3,000 people getting baptized in a particular morning. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. 3,000 people. You know, liberal scholars, liberal scholars, I'm using that phrase somewhat facetiously, have mocked the idea of the accuracy of the book of Acts in this particular account because for years there was no evidence that there was enough water in Jerusalem to baptize this many people, regardless of whatever reason it might have been for. There just was no evidence that there was enough water to baptize 3,000 people and therefore they concluded that this story on the day of Pentecost with 3,000 people getting baptized, that's baloney. And I'm being polite in how I'm saying it. Well, a number of years ago, wouldn't you know, the archaeologists who are hard at work trying to restore that Temple Mount area so that it very closely, it's almost complete where it almost represents identically what it represented during the first century when Jesus was here. They uncovered in their archaeological digs mikvah baptism bathing pools. So many that were used for the ritual of baptism according to Judaism that it would have been exceptionally easy to baptize 3,000 people and more. And so the liberal scholars were put in their place, and once again, we understand that the Bible means what it says, says what it means. It is accurate, not only about theological truth, but also about historic events. It's huge that God chose Jerusalem in that location, that particular location, as the place where he poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Because in one fell swoop, God is making a statement, and the statement is, there's no room for a lamp to be under a bushel when it comes to being a witness for his son. Daddy is proud of his son. The father is pleased with his son, always was, was then, always will be, and you should be too. There are no lamps under any bushels on the day of Pentecost. God is making a statement, putting his son out there, putting Christianity, putting the idea of Jesus who was crucified on a cross publicly in front of everybody. Now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit right there in Jerusalem for everybody to see. To the Jew first, God making a statement, he wanted everybody and he still wants everybody anywhere regardless of what their past might be to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus being the one through whom anybody can be saved. That's what's happening there on the day of Pentecost with the location and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, if God could demonstrate his pride in the Son, his approval of the Son, if God could go out of his way to make sure that Jesus could not be mistaken as anything other than the anointed and the appointed, the one who died for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, then why in the world would you apologize for it in the workplace? Why would I apologize for it in the workplace? Why would you want to apologize for the truth that God has given to you, who given your life to Jesus Christ? 
Do it with humility. Do it with courage. But by all means, do it. Stand up and speak out. Don't let yourself be told to sit down and shut up. Get out there and be the witness in the location that God has placed you to let people know that there is hope. There is forgiveness of sin that is available exclusively through the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. If God could do it deliberately, intentionally, to transform those apostles, those believers into being witnesses and deliver what he promised on the day of Pentecost, the whole idea, this is not a book of exceptions, it's a book of examples. God has given to you, poured out the Holy Spirit into you and onto you for the very same purpose that you can open up your mouth and be a witness wherever God has placed you wherever God has placed you. Don't let your lamp be placed under a bushel. Don't do that to yourself. Don't let a work environment or a neighborhood in which you live do that to you. Don't let this world of reverse intolerance in which we live do that to you. Don't let anybody overwhelm and overcome the power of the Holy Spirit within you and upon you to stand up and speak out with humble courage to give testimony to be a witness for Jesus. After all, he forgave you every single one of your sins. After all, he will forgive you every single one of your sins. Why, in God's name, literally, would we ever want to apologize for the greatest gift you'll ever get in the course of all eternity? Forgiveness of sin. And listen, I was one of those people that when I would hear the gospel, I would make fun of people. Not hard to imagine, is it? I would make fun of people and I would ridicule them and I would argue with them. The Apostle Paul blaspheming the gospel before he understood what it was about, thinking he was doing the right thing. You will encounter people in the course of your life who think they know it all and they're arrogant and they're prideful and they are fork-tongued, they are sharp-tongued and they know how to debate. Who cares? When the Holy Spirit got a hold of Peter, who wasn't very good at standing up and speaking out in the flesh, look what God did through him. It doesn't matter who you're witnessing to. What matters is that God has equipped you with the invincible arsenal of the Holy Spirit, the power of Almighty God himself that if you will let that power be unleashed in your life, you will not help but be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit falls upon you in power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, as we're now seeing, and then Judea, as we will see, and then Samaria, as we will see, and then the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God falling out and changing mere mortals just like you and me to speak up for the immortal and to give testimony to the truth that Jesus is the one and only anointed and appointed one sent by God the Father. Remember that the next time you feel tempted to sit down and shut up when God has called you 
to stand up and speak out and to be a witness for the Jesus of the Bible in the environment where God has placed you, no matter how dark or dastardly it may appear. That may be the very reason why God sent you as that solitary candle to illuminate what would otherwise be as dark as night. Be that witness, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, and let God do through you what only God can do despite you, despite me. You will say things you otherwise would not say. You will do things you otherwise would not do. And the only reason, the only reason is because God the Father in his graciousness, God the Son in his graciousness has given to you as somebody who has repented and accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, accepted Jesus personally, the Holy Spirit is given to you so that you can be a witness you otherwise would not be. And oh, what an invincible witness you will be. What invincible witnesses we are when the Holy Spirit fills us up. No weapon formed against you can prosper. It is not your responsibility or mine for the consequences of being a witness. It is only your responsibility and mine to let the words of God come out of our mouths, the lifestyle that comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit come out of us and leave the consequences with Almighty God. Acts chapter two, verse 36, let all the house of Israel, as Peter is preaching his famous message on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Not one or the other, but both. If you understand Jesus only for the forgiveness of your sins, but don't understand him as Lord, you just learned something right here and right now. The whole purpose of understanding Jesus as Savior is to lead you to the point as quickly as possible and then for a lifetime as thoroughly as possible to embrace him also as Lord, master of every area of your life. There is no area of our lives that we can safely withhold from Jesus Christ. And those who have, have lived to regret it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Big problem because in the Old Testament, God the Father made it clear. He sent Jesus. The works of Jesus make it absolutely clear that he is the anointed and the appointed. Now when they heard this, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Big mistake that they've done, humanly speaking, crucifying the Messiah. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, Peter bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000. 
thousand souls. And so the people respond to God's initiative. He sent Jesus as his one-of-a-kind savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says in John 14. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus gave exclusive teaching. He put himself on equal footing with God the Father. He made it clear that there is no other way that you could be saved. We'll see that again very soon in Acts, the book of Acts. That there's no other name given by God through which an individual must be saved and can only be saved. It's through Jesus and through Jesus only. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem not with me, you have a problem with the teachings of Jesus. So take it up with him. Jesus made it abundantly clear, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's nobody like Jesus. So don't make the waters muddy when God has made them crystal clear. They're responding to God's initiative by sending Jesus, but they're responding to God's initiative also in pouring out the Holy Spirit onto Peter. And Peter gives a message centered upon repentance. And so they're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do if this is true? And apparently it is because we want to respond to what God is saying to us. See, a message, a sermon should never be seen as a message from just a man or a message just from a woman. If it is, perhaps you've set your sights too low. When it comes to the teaching and the preaching of God's word, the Bible, when it's presented accurately, not distorted, that should be seen as something that is more significant than whoever the donkey of the, of the day might be delivering it. You have to get beyond whether or not the sermon entertained you, whether you found it interesting or whatever. You have to pay attention and listen for the voice of God despite how something might be said, despite what must be said. This is why the scriptures make clear, let him who speaks speak as one speaking the very words of God. By contrast, let him who hears listen as one listening to the very words of God. And that's what the people were doing when they responded to Peter. What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, not only is the Holy Spirit proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Almighty God, the Savior, the Holy Spirit in your life is also proof that God has forgiven you. How do you know whether or not God has forgiven you? Because he gives you the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know whether or not you've been given the Holy Spirit by whether or not you've repented? You know, there are some people who try to make a case that the Holy Spirit is given through the laying on of hands. There's no laying on of hands here in Acts chapter two. And God has a multiplicity of means through which he can manifest himself. If you don't understand that, read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Let's stop putting God in a box and saying, unless it happens this way, and only this way, God's not in it. 
There's no laying on of hands for the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that demonstrates that Jesus is the anointed and the appointed one of God. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is a promise from Almighty God. Peter makes it very clear in verse 38. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as the book of Acts is all about, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. For anybody who calls on the name of this Lord, Lord Jesus, you will be forgiven. But there's something that must precede forgiveness. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of forgiveness that is manifest through the giving of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is given as proof that you have been forgiven. Every single one of your sins has been forgiven. How do you know that? Because you have the Holy Spirit. Well, how did you get the Holy Spirit? When you repented, when there was that moment in your life. Some of us had that moment down very clearly. We know the day, we know the moment, we know the hour. I don't. Others of us can identify with me. You don't know the day or the hour, but you know the season. You know for sure that there was a time in your life when you gave your life to Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, and you did what Peter said to them in Acts chapter two. You repented. The idea that's presented here in the Greek, the idea of that word repent means to change your mind, to change someone's mind. And Paul encounters that value that the Greek world had when we read the book of Corinthians where he's dealing with Sophia, the Greek word for knowledge and wisdom and how they were belittling the apostle Paul because he wasn't a great orator, he wasn't a great speaker, but he was a phenomenal theologian. Greeks value knowledge. They value the brain, the mind. And so it's significant that this word repent means to change your mind. To change your mind about what? To change your mind about Jesus. You who rejected Jesus as he's speaking to the Jews in this context need to understand that you crucified the anointed and the appointed. So what must we do to be saved? Repent, ask God to forgive you, and demonstrate your repentance through the act of an outward expression called baptism. And we'll get there in just a moment. But I'm not done yet with this idea of repentance. The Greek idea is to change your mind. The Hebrew idea is to turn, to change your direction. And so by the time we're done understanding the Jewish concept of repentance, And the Greek concept of repentance, one deals with turning and changing your lifestyle, the other one deals with changing your mind, your thinking. We have a transformation that is from the inside out. Repentance involves a change of the mind, a change of the heart, and it leads to a change in the lifestyle. And the whole biblical teaching is that unless there is an eventual change in lifestyle, it might be evidence that there wasn't genuine biblical repentance in the first place. Now, we all have our own timetable. We all have our preferences. Some of us like crockpots. Some of us like microwaves. Some of us have changed in Jesus, and our change is more akin to a microwave. Dramatic, instantaneous, like a Damascus Road experience, like the Apostle Paul. But actually, when you look at it really, and you really study it, I'm not sure that Paul's conversion was so instantaneous. There was a critical mass moment in Paul's life but God had been moving and stirring in him for quite a while to lead him to that critical mass moment 
where instantaneously he would give his life to Jesus, the very savior he was studying about in the Old Testament but didn't understand. For some of us, our lives changed instantaneously more like a microwave. For me, my change was more like a crock pot, probably because I was so thick-headed and so stubborn-willed and so into I can do it. I need to do it as if God needs me to do something. No, the only thing that God needs me to do is to get out of his way. And for many of us, that's what needs to happen in our lives. Get out of God's way and let him change your marriage. Get out of God's way and let him change your business. Get out of God's way and let him give to you the calling upon your life that he's been giving to you for a number of years, but you've been resisting. It's very hard to kick against the goads. Be careful you don't settle for second best when God is offering you his very best in the person and the works of Jesus and everything that accompanies a lifestyle of repentance. Now you notice when Peter says repent and be baptized, he doesn't say repent or be baptized. He doesn't say be baptized and don't repent. He says repent and be baptized. And it's important for us to understand that today in the modern world, I was raised a Catholic. We have done a great job, and by great I don't mean good, it's sad, it's terrible, it's tragic. We've done a great job of divorcing the significance of baptism with repentance. I was baptized at an age, I don't remember being baptized. I was an infant when I was baptized. It's very hard to repent when you are about two weeks old. Biblically speaking, we see again and again and again that repentance and water baptism are not divorced at all. They go together. And there are some instances where we do not see water baptism take place. For example, in Acts chapter three, verse 19. Why don't we see water baptism take place there when Peter is making it clear yet again? When the message of repentance is being brought forth yet again with absolute clarity, there's no mention of baptism there. You know why? Because when we get to Acts chapter four, we see that they were cut off mid-sentence. That sermon didn't get finished. The coupling of water baptism with repentance doesn't take place there because they're cut off at the pass. But when the gospel is clearly taught, it is clearly caught. And what needs to be caught is that there is an outward expression called water baptism that reflects the interchange of the mind and the heart, the turning. The first thing that you need to do when you give your life to Jesus Christ is to turn from the world, turn from yourself, turn from the things of the devil, and go in a different direction. That's what repentance is. And the first fundamental black and white clear thing that you do is you get baptized in water that symbolizes repentance. Notice what Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is asking God to do something that he needs to do in your life. Forgive me. That's what repentance is. Repentance is, oh God, I am sorry. Forgive me. And I'm demonstrating my allegiance to you through water baptism. You know, nobody asks the question, what are you talking about, Pete? 
What are you talking about when it comes to water baptism? See, in the course of a Jew's life, they would have been baptized many times. You go up to a festival, you go up to a feast, you would have participated in a mikvah bathing pool, a baptismal pool, a ritual cleansing bath symbolizing that you were outwardly demonstrating the work that God has done inside of you and what you have done before Almighty God, asking him to purify you and to cleanse you and wash you. 3,000 people baptized on the day of Pentecost is actually not a big deal. What? 3,000 people baptized on the day of Pentecost is not the big deal here, Gentile non-Jew. The big deal about the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people getting baptized is that they are baptized into the name of the Jewish rabbi who was crucified, who was not present to observe the baptisms that his disciples would be administering. That's massive. And these Jewish leaders who thought they had taken care of the Jesus problem are now understanding they're getting a crash course in how it is futile to resist Almighty God. The big deal about the day of Pentecost is that 3,000 people recognize that Jesus is their Messiah and they are now saying publicly through the outward expression of their inward repentance that we follow Jesus as our rabbi and we are going to adhere to his school of Judaism, not that of those who crucified him. We are turning from being among those people who rejected Jesus and we are now accepting him. That is a massive, mind-blowing thing. The rabbi was supposed to be there observing while his disciples baptized. And this is a huge thing that these devout Jews, as Acts chapter two says, and proselytes, people who converted to Judaism, are there and being baptized into the name of the crucified Savior. To be crucified was to be made fun of. To be crucified was to be mocked. It was the most belittling means of execution. Humanly speaking, again, Jesus voluntarily gave his life. Crucifixion was done on purpose to make a mockery of the one being executed. It was a shameful way to die under the Roman law and under the Jewish teaching. If a person was crucified, they were considered cursed. The Bible says cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's a reference to crucifixion. And so the fact that these Jews, 3,000 of them, want to be identified with that Jesus, that is a movement of the Spirit of God. They didn't do anything to squelch the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by dealing Jesus that death blow by putting him on a cross. They didn't do anything to stop this message of the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins, that one, Jesus, would die for all, including you. The Holy Spirit is poured out proving that God meant what he said, says what he means, that he meant it before the beginning of time that he would send his one and only, his uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. God never changed his mind any time along the way. 
and he's not going to change his mind now. This idea of repentance and baptism, they go hand in glove. Now, it's very easy to take a a la carte approach to Christianity. Well, I have this teaching from Jesus, but I don't want that teaching. I'll take this part of Jesus, but I don't want that part. I like these books of the Bible, but I don't like those books of the Bible. We have an a la carte approach to Christianity and to Jesus Christ as a consequence in the Western world. It's dumbed us down. It's made us very weak when it comes to a lifestyle of repentance. There must be a moment in your life when you give your life to Christ for the very first time, but that opens the door to a new lifestyle in Christ as a result of the very first time you gave your life to him. And that lifestyle must be characterized by a walk in repentance. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he says, And when he said, as it is recorded in Mark chapter one, verse 15, repent and keep repenting, believe and keep believing. You come to know Christ initially for the very first time, but that is a coming to a lifestyle, a commitment of taking up your cross every day, dying to yourself, dying to the world, and turning every day and every moment of every day to now follow Jesus, not yourself, not the world, not what the crowd is doing. And it is an amazing thing that Peter's repentance from denying Jesus three times around that fire pit, around that fire where he was warming himself and probably within earshot of Jesus. How do I know that? Because if you read your Bible, when Peter denies the Lord, the Bible says that Jesus turned and looked straight at him. God is mightily at work in the life of this fisherman who actually became quite a solid theologian by this time. He's actually in the Bible. You can be a blue-collar person, not go to seminary, not go to Bible college, but if you spend time with Jesus and you get into the Word of God, you can actually become a pretty good witness for Jesus. We see Peter now in his sermon on Acts chapter 2, his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he's referencing Isaiah, he's referencing the Psalms, And he leads 3,000 people to the feet of Jesus. And it is all summarized in this message of repentance. I know that you did what you shouldn't have done. God knows it too. And yet the beautiful thing about this message, it's a message of grace, undeserved favor. These are people who Peter says are guilty. They are responsible with the other Jewish leaders. They're responsible for crucifying Jesus. Now, if it was up to me, if it was up to you, I would write them off, wouldn't you? You blew it. I'm gonna move on to greener pastures, and that's it, but no. The message of repentance is also a message of undeserved grace, undeserved favor, the mercy of God, where instead of getting what you deserve, we get what we don't deserve, which is the opportunity to be forgiven. And all God is looking for is repentance, to accept Jesus as the Lord and Messiah, that he always was. And the outward sign of that is water baptism, where you're identifying with Jesus publicly, unashamedly, not putting your lamp under a bushel, but letting it be out there for everybody, for everybody to see 
because you understand that there is no hope and there is only hope found in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read the second chapter of Acts and you'll think that Peter preached this message and gave his altar call and instantaneously, as soon as he was done, 3,000 people came forward and that was the end of it and that was the beginning, the birth of the church. But if you read it more closely, look at verse 39. You'll understand something that should pop and it's not that the Bible comes alive, the Bible already is alive. It's that the Bible quickens us when we read it. Look with me, Acts chapter two, verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. With many other words, he exhorted them. The idea that's being presented here is that this net of repentance that Peter has cast is being pulled up over time. We don't know if his message lasted a half hour or an hour or longer, but it's a highlight reel with many other words. He pleaded with them. He exhorted them. The word that's used here for exhort is similar to the same root from which we get the word of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the idea of coming alongside of somebody and encouraging them, challenging them, admonishing them, pleading with them and begging them. You get this understanding that there are thousands of people there listening to Peter pour out his heart. What a transformation in Peter! Wouldn't be a witness for Jesus in a comfortable spot where he's warming himself around a fire. And now, he's begging them. He's pleading with them. He's pouring himself out. You get the impression that he's going over to this group of people in that crowd. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I'm exhorting you with many other words. I'm bringing the scriptures to your mind. I'm helping you understand the seriousness and the severity of your sin. You must do something. You must repent. There is no hope. There is no help. There is no salvation without the repentance that God requires from every single person individually. Your mother can't die for you your father can't die for you your pastor can't pray for you a prayer that's big enough significant enough powerful enough potent enough to save you and rescue you you must save yourself by repenting and accepting Jesus Christ as your master and your savior and that will be evidenced first and foremost by publicly identifying with him in baptism and then the entire course of your life whether it's like a microwave or a crock pot demonstrating Repentance, where you become more and more and more and more like Jesus. Being a witness, bearing testimony, exhorting, encouraging, coming alongside of people at the workplace and in your family, in your neighborhood, doing what Peter did so flawlessly, so beautifully on the day of Pentecost, doing what you will do on your day in and day out when you are surrendered to the Lord you will say things you otherwise would not say. To people you would otherwise not even address. You will do things you would otherwise not do because it's not you doing it, it's not you saying it. It's the spirit of your God in heaven saying these things through you, through me, despite you, despite me. The message of the day of Pentecost is one of undeserved favor that even these who are responsible in part for crucifying the Lord are being given an opportunity to repent and to be forgiven 
And that's exactly what God did in your life and in mine, in the life of anybody who's given their life to Christ. It's exactly what God does in the life of anybody who is about to give their life to Christ. You give your life to Christ, he'll forgive you all of your sins and give you the Holy Spirit as evidence that your sins have been forgiven. And it all requires repentance. That repentance leads to repentance with growing momentum, increasing clarity, and tremendous impact in the lives of the other people that God will put you in front of throughout the course of your life. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.